0: The, the, the real benefit of the modern energy minimum is not that this is the perfect measure of how much electricity a person le- needs to live a modern life, but it starts to put, um, it starts to put all people on a, a closer footing to the realities that people in the rich world live with now. So like I'm sitting in the United States right now and as an average, I'll use 13,000 kilowatt hours a year. Um, and so even setting the bar at a 1,000 uh, seems awfully low. If I, was, um, if I was a Nigerian sitting and listening to this podcast, I might think that's still way, way too low, um, but it's still better than, than what we're doing now. So I think the idea is how do we take that um, ambition and get that into the international goals that
1: we use? That was Todd Moss, the founder and executive director of the Energy for a Growth Hub. And this is the Power for All podcast, a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. I'm your host, William Brent. Besides his current day job at the Hub, Todd has worked as a senior diplomat, an academic, a development bank advisor, an editor, and even moonlights as the author of action thrillers. Pretty cool. He is a recognized expert on energy finance and foreign policy. Welcome, Todd.
0: Hi, William. Great to be with you.
1: Thanks. So as uh, we've explored in a recent podcast with uh, IASA, it's pretty clear that the way we, being the global development community, are measuring energy poverty is broken. Todd, you and your team have added to this important conversation uh, with the recent launch of a framework you call the Modern Energy Minimum which calls for a huge jump in ambition for what the global development community considers basic energy access. So first, I just have to ask you up front, uh, maybe it's not the most important question, but is it the MEM framework or is it the MEM framework or what are we calling this thing?
0: You know, I think that there are already way too many acronyms in development. So we call it just the modern energy minimum or for shorthand, you can call it the minimum.
1: The minimum, okay, I like it. Okay, so uh, under the minimum, uh, you're calling for increasing the access energy access threshold from 50 to 100 kilowatts per hour per person per year, which I understand is enough to power a few light bulbs for a few hours a day, to charge a mobile phone, and to occasionally run a small fan. From that 50 to 100, to you're, you're suggesting going to 1,000 kilowatt hours per person per year with at least... 300 or 30% of that at h- coming from home use and 70% coming from uh, being consumed in the wider economy. So I'm just wondering if we could start by you explaining briefly, what's the rationale behind this very large leap in ambition?
0: So, you know, the the current measure for energy access um, is great. And, you know, we definitely, there's no person on the planet that should be living with less than 50 kilowatt hours of electricity. I mean, it's just—it's just you know—it's a bare minimum, and it's a—it's—it's it's a, a shame, uh, you know, and a stain on the international community that we still have people that don't even have this basic access. Um, but we thought that you—you know—we want to have, and we should absolutely commit ourselves, and double commit ourselves to getting everybody to this first step. But we also thought that that first step is really not very high, um, and. Just like with income, we have multiple steps. So with, the, with income poverty, we have $1.90 a day as the international poverty line. And yes, we want to get everybody above that line. And uh, we have to double our efforts to make sure everybody gets there. Um, but we also have lines, uh, the World Bank has a line at $5.50 as well, which they see as another step up the income ladder. And of course, we want people to become much richer than $5 a day. Um, but it's, an, it's, it's giving us another signal along along the progress um, that we all hope to see. And with energy, we still only have that first step, 50 if you live in rural areas and 100 kilowatt hours if you live in a city. Um, but that's really just, it didn't seem like it was enough. Um, and we wanted to say, okay, what would be that next step? Um, So 1,000 is more ambitious, um, but in some ways, it's actually not not a tenfold increase. So the household component um, is a threefold increase um, over the 100. And then it also adds this wider measure uh, beyond what we're using at home. And that's based on the fact that actually most electricity that we use is not at home. Uh, it's in the wider economy. It's embedded in the things that we use. Um, it's in the factories where we work and where the factories that produce the goods that we use. And it's in, you know, increasingly it's in the cloud and it's in the digital economy, which seems to be, you know, increasingly important, uh, especially in a time of a pandemic when so many people are locked down. So so that that was the idea. Um, and we actually pulled together 14 energy scholars to kind of look at data, look at historical trends and come up with, well, what what makes sense as that next step? And that's what we came up with, which was a uh, thousand kilowatt hours split between household and non-household
1: use. OK, so uh, you said it's not a 10x increase for households, but, you know, let's say it's a 6x uh, depending on whether you're in urban or rural areas, it's still a significant uh, increase. And that, that, that has implications that come with it, right? On the one hand, the need for financing will be greater, just by definition, right? While affordability, which is already an issue for uh, many poor people, uh, would initially be an even bigger concern. That's on maybe on the negative side. On the maybe positive side is that, you know, consuming more energy could also mean improved incomes, greater economic activity, more employment, so these are two lines that uh, I assume are, will eventually intersect. I mean, what are the what are the ac- the experts that you uh, canvassed to come up with this this new minimum? What what's the thinking about when those two lines cross? I mean, where do we get when do we get from maybe this is a hit? For you know affordability and finance, to this is actually benefiting the the broader economy.
0: So that that's a good question, and it comes to the re- this relationship between consuming energy at home and consuming energy in the wider economy. Um, so if you're very poor, you're not going to be able to afford 300 kilowatt hours at home, much less the appliances that you need to turn that electricity into something useful. That's why having the non-household energy component is so important because that is this is generally true. It's not always true, but generally people use energy outside the home to, to create income, which then allows them to then use energy at home to, have, to live better, li- uh, better lives. And so in many places where um, it's this interplay between income and energy, both inside and outside the home, which is that uh, virtuous cycle that we're trying to spark, and this idea is that certain countries um, have invested, particularly the East Asian, fast-growing East Asian countries. They invested he- very, very heavily in um, in non-household uh, energy first. So a country like uh, like uh, South Korea. Uh, had extremely high levels of energy in the wider economy even when people at home were still not consuming very much in a country like uh, Ghana actually we see somewhat the opposite where where it's it's a household first energy strategy they prioritized uh, connecting homes and trying to encourage people to um, to to consume electricity at home but they're still even though they've been relatively successful at that, they're still um, facing regular electricity outages, very high electricity costs, and the electricity uh, problems are still a constraint on job creation in Ghana. Um, So it's really, that's why we're trying to get at these two components with the modern energy minimum, that we need affordable, reliable electricity outside the home, and we also need it inside the home. Um, So that's how we see these two kind of playing off each other in a positive, in, in a more positive way.
1: Yeah. So on that point, I mean, is there a chicken and an egg here? I mean, do, can you clearly say one is the chicken and the other is the egg or? Well, I think it's,
0: I think it's more of a, of a, of a cycle. Um, it could, and it can be a virtuous cycle where abundant reliable energy in the wider economy helps drive incomes higher. And then that allows people to buy appliances and live more productive, healthier uh, longer lives. Um, the opposite, which is what we see in some countries is that uh, countries are building uh, power systems, but people are too poor to use it and too poor to buy uh, the appliances that would make their lives better. Um, and that's because the broader economy, and this is not true everywhere, but this is true in a lot of a lot of places. The broader economy is being held back because the power is too unreliable or it's unavailable. Uh, Or it's too expensive. You'll notice I keep talking about reliability and affordability and availability, um, and none of that is in our measure. It's just we're just measuring consumption because embedded in consumption are all of those aspects. Um, So, so that's 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 how we think about trying to make it uh, a positive upward cycle rather than as a constraint on on development, on health, on empowerment, and all the all of the things we want to see. Uh, everyone achieve around the world.
1: Yeah. So just sticking on the household for a second, um, uh, I, I don't think that the minimum included cooking in its uh, framework. Um, and I'm wondering um, if, if if that isn't a, a miss, right? Given that we know that energy used in cooking represents a much larger percentage of total consumption uh, of energy and that the population uh, of those people without cooking, clean cooking in this instance is three times that of the population without electricity. So, am I correct that that was not included? And if so, why? Yeah,
0: it's a, it's it's a it's a really really great observation. Um, so so the short answer is you are correct. We did not include cooking. That was actually a, an explicit deliberate decision. Um, the group of the fourteen of us went round and round about whether this was about. Energy more broadly, and a kilowatt equivalent, or if we should just stick with electricity. Um, and if you wanted, for instance, if we wanted to include um, enough electricity for everyone to boil water with electricity at home, it kind of um, it makes the numbers significantly larger. And of course, we wouldn't expect people in many places to use electricity, at least let's say, not in the next ten years, to boil water at home. They probably would use, well, they're currently using biomass, but if they move to, to, to cooking gas, um, there's such a mix there. Um, and so we decided that since the, uh, the energy access metric that the IEA and that the UN and World Bank and others use is just about electricity, that we would also stick to just electricity. But I, I think your point is absolutely right. If we're expecting electricity... Um, to uh, enable people to cook at home, then 300 uh, kilowatt hours per year is not even close to enough. Um, so we should be even more ambitious if we're expecting uh, that from electricity. But you know, I think that there, it, this gets to a, an important wider point, which is you know we're also not talking about transportation um, here. Um, so transportation is mostly liquid fuels. Um, and again, it was just we thought for this metric it was better. Let's stick with let's stick with electricity for now, um, and then there can be other indicators around other energy needs that that all people
1: have. Yeah, well, I mean, as as electric cooking and e mobility uh, continue to rise, I'm assuming that your your minimum will evolve to reflect the, the the new dynamic at some point.
0: Yeah, I think that that it 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 will. I think we'll see two. Trends there. One is we're going to see a lot of improvements in efficiency um, from electricity, you know, uh, of, of appliances and uses of electricity. So that would push the need for higher levels of consumption down. At the same time, we've got a, a, the trend of electrifying everything, uh, where, where, you know, two wheel vehicles, four wheel vehicles, trucking, busing, um, uh, lots of things are going to move to electricity, which would drive consumption higher. So, you know, eventually um, we'll need to adjust these metrics to the realities of the market. Um, but in most of the countries where we're looking at, which is mostly in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, e-mobility is, is just barely getting started. It's, um, it, it's not a significant uh, portion yet. Um, uh, same with, with electric cooking. But as the market evolves and we see higher demand for those electricity uh, electricity-driven appliances and and machines, then we'll we'll need to adjust what what would what would be a reasonable minimum.
1: Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So so given what I know, just going back to the sort of broader issues here, um, it's it's very unlikely that any of the indicators that track Sustainable Development Goal seven, which is access to modern, affordable, reliable, clean energy. That those indicators will be updated in any meaningful way, just because it requires an international consensus that's unlikely to happen. So, um, you know, given given that that's probably the political reality, are we are we looking at trying to apply this minimum at the at a country level? Is that are those conversations that have already started to happen with country governments, or how do you want to try and operationalize this or or actually see it implemented?
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent practical question that we have thought about. So, you know, I think that the, the, the real benefit of the modern energy minimum is not that this is the perfect measure of how much electricity a person le- needs to live a modern life, but it starts to put, um, it starts to put all people on a, a closer footing to the realities that people in the rich world live with now. So like I'm sitting in the United States right now. And as an average, I'll use 13,000 kilowatt hours a year. Um, and so even setting the bar at 1,000 uh, seems awfully low. If I, was, um, if I was a Nigerian sitting and listening to this podcast, I might think that's still way, way too low. Um, but it's still better than, than what we're doing now. So I think the idea is how do we take that um, ambition and get that into the international goals that we use. Um, so I have we have sort of two two phases to this. One is it takes a little while to socialize the idea of a new metric. And um, so we're we're in the in the short term we're talking to organizations like the International Energy Agency, like the World Bank, like a set of countries that also are um, uh, are looking for that next measurement step. Um, to try to just get that idea uh, accepted. Um, and so it becomes a little less strange. I do have an ambition for the modern energy minimum that not for this round of the sustainable development goals, but for the next round, that there would be a higher level measure. And I would hope it would be something like the modern energy minimum. Uh, and you know, going back, I remember the millennium development goals um, and now, now we have the Sustainable Development Goals, and I would very much expect that sometime, uh, maybe uh, late next year, early 2023, that we'll start having a conversation about okay, what are the goals? Um, you know, 2030s around the corner. What what are the goals for 2040, 2045, maybe 2050? And that's where you can start to set these uh, these next steps. So I'm not, I don't have any illusions. This is going to happen overnight. Um, but it's, it is a process of, of trying to get the entire global community to to, um, to raise the bar on what we're trying to achieve uh, for everyone on the planet.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, good to hear a little bit more about the, the vision moving, moving ahead. Um, just to, to, to sort of dwell for a second on this whole notion of, of measuring consumption, I, I've talked to a number of your peers in the sector who would argue that, uh consumption is no longer the most appropriate measure for energy access. Um, some have talked about appliance ownership. Uh, I think there's some other suggestions out there as well. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Um, uh, yeah, look, I think that asset ownership is very promising for how for uh, for um, for measuring household uh, well-being. There's no question about that. Actually, um, India has a middle class. Uh, definition that's based on asset ownership, Uh, and there's a data company uh, here in the United States called Frame, um, which applied a similar asset ownership um, survey data to Sub-Saharan Africa to try to estimate um, the size of the the growing consumer middle class in in different African cities. So I think there's a lot that can be learned from other kinds of surveys. I, I'm still a fan of consumption because there's so many uh, things embedded in consumption, uh, particularly in the wider economy. So you could own a fridge at home, and maybe you've got a laptop, or you know you've got a full suite of modern appliances in your home. Um, but if you're still living and working in an economy where um, where You know, the average person is not consuming seven hundred or even, you know, two thousand kilowatt hours per person. Then you're living, you're living and working in an economy where energy is a constraint on on job creation, on productivity, on turning people's ideas into uh, into businesses. Um, And so we we hope that we can get to a point where. Uh, lousy electricity or costly electricity is no longer a constraint. So, you know, when I started the Energy for Growth Hub, which is, you know, a nonprofit research network based here in DC, it did not occur to me that I would have to worry about where we would get electricity to run our computers and store our data. I just assumed that it would happen. And I also don't worry about the price of it, I just know that I'm going to get affordable, uh, reliable electricity to power my business. Um, if I was starting the hub in Ghana, um, I would worry about that. I would worry about the cost and I would worry about where was I going to get it uh, and where was I going to have backup when, when it went out. And that just is a massive constraint on all the people that should be running businesses like mine in Ghana. Um, so um, that's not going to get captured in the asset ownership, but I do agree we need you know, multiple, um, multiple metrics to try to capture all of the things um, that we're, we're hoping to achieve. So, um, so I, you know, I would, I would encourage that. And I I do want to just be clear, we're not trying to replace the modern energy minimum doesn't replace uh, the, the uh, basic access rate that we use now. It's a, it's a complement to it. It's the next step. We want to get everybody to step one, and we're proposing this would be step two
1: yeah maybe you're you just answered the the last question I had which is a little bit in the weeds but maybe I'll, I'll ask it anyway which is um, the modern energy minimum is different from the multi-tier framework which is the framework that the World Bank uses to uh, define different levels of access to electricity I think it goes up to tier five if I'm not mistaken Todd um, what's what's what is the is did you just explain what the difference was between the uh, Modern energy minimum uh, in, the, in the multi-tier framework, or is there something that I, I, I'm not picking up on yet?
0: No. So, so the multi-tier framework is a really, really helpful effort. Um, where again, they're saying, look, it, what's similar is that they're saying we need more than just a single binary measure. You have, you have, you're connected or you're not connected. That's not good enough. And they're they're looking at a framework for measuring all of the different aspects of of having um, access to electricity, which is the reliability, the affordability, um, and scale. There's a, there are several dimensions to it. Um, as a framework, it's actually very very um, useful because it helps you think about um, uh, energy access in a multi dimensional way, which of course it is. Um, what I but again, we're not competing with that. What I think the two shortcomings of the of the of the multi-tier framework are? Uh, one is is that even tier five is not very ambitious. Um, William, you or I would not be happy at all with tier five. Um, uh, it's it's still not you know ninety nine percent rely it's far less than ninety nine percent reliable, and it's definitely not enough. Um, it wouldn't be enough to um, for my family. Uh, to function as we normally do now, so I think even Tier Five is not not quite ambitious enough. Um, but the bigger issue with the MTF is that it's it's a really very very expensive data collection effort to really track it. So you can't look at um, every country around the world um, every year and see you know what, what how are they doing on the MTF. You can do it through spot surveys. Um, but it's not um, it's not practical in a in a massive data collection exercise that would be mostly universal on a regular basis. So again, a big contribution to the field and I think it will help us it helps us understand the relationship between energy and development in certain contexts and in certain geographic locations but as a you know I don't see the MTF being useful for the next round of the sustainable development goals which, um, both energy access and the modern energy minimum could, could easily be.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, I love the, I love the fact that you're, you're helping to shift the, the discussion and the the dialogue on this topic. And I think it's absolutely the right thing to do in terms of trying to increase the level of ambition, um, so that, you know, everybody can, uh, live a, a, a life where they're not, not only not concerned about access to electricity, but they're not concerned about access to sufficient and, uh, and affordable and reliable electricity. So Todd, how, how do people find out more about the the minimum? Where do, we, where do they go to learn more about that?
0: Yeah. So if you go to our website, it's energyforgrowth.org. Um, there's a little one minute or 90 second uh, explainer video, um, and then there's the full report um, and there's a couple of other goodies there. so if people are interested, you know um, encourage them to have a look at the website and let us know what you think um, and definitely send us your your ideas for for making it better
1: yeah, and that also lists the fifteen experts that you consulted for coming up with a minimum.
0: That's right they're on they're on the cover of the report and uh, it it'll be a lot of names that. You know, if you're an energy nerd, you're in the field. Hopefully, you'll recognize most, if not all, of those people.
1: Great. All right, Todd. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll be we'll be watching. At a minimum, we'll be watching the minimum. Ha. Excellent. Excellent. Thank Thank you, William. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. A reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, powerforall.org, and our platform for energy access knowledge, which we call Peak P E A K. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter and other updates. And if you feel like making a tax-deductible contribution to Powerful, you can do so from our homepage. Speak with you soon on the next episode of Powerful.